On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. I'm a big science fiction lover, and I've always thought of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, in that light. But it's not a search for E.T. or for habitable planets with water. Its telescopes and satellites are seeking signs of civilizational intelligence, advanced technologies as great as or beyond our own. And the astronomer Jill Tarter is one of SETI's founding pioneers. She was an inspiration for the character Jodie Foster played in the movie Contact, based on the novel by Carl Sagan. To speak with Jill Tarter is to begin to grasp the creative majesty of SETI and what is of present relevance in the ancient question of whether we're alone in the universe. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Jill Tarter lives in Northern California, where the SETI Institute is based. And she's the subject of a biography by Sarah Scholes called Making Contact. I spoke with her in 2019. I did read, and I think this is in Sarah Scholes' biography, that you first considered the possibility of alien life when you were visiting the Florida Keys as a child. Did that, did that actual thought cross your mind? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, the uh, my aunt and uncle were literally beachcombers, and when I was a small child, we'd we'd visit them in, in uh, Minnesota Key two or three times a year. Yeah, and so I was walking along the beach on this beautiful key, very uninhabited, very dark, so the sky was beautiful. I was walking with my dad, holding his hand, and he was trying to teach me various constellations. And I looked up and I understood that those stars in the sky were like our sun. And and it just seemed absolutely natural to me that on a beach circling one of those Hmm. stars up there, there would be another creature walking along with its parent um, by the edge of an ocean and looking up and seeing our sun as a star in their sky. It just seemed obvious to me. Hmm. So that was my first introduction to thinking about life beyond Earth. Yeah. And I, I think you could really see the night sky in the Florida Keys, uh, probably more than is possible now. Um, it wasn't, oh, yeah. It well, wasn't right. It wasn't so much a tourist destination. No. And of course, that key now is totally overpopulated yeah. and not so dark. But back then, it was a beautiful, uninhabited mostly, and gorgeous, lovely place. Yeah. Um, I often ask a question at the beginning of my interviews, whoever I'm speaking about, um, about whether there was a religious or spiritual background of one's childhood, however you would describe that now. And I have to say that that picture of you walking along the beach with your father telling you about the stars um, does feel like that to me. I don't know, was there, did you speak about it in terms of these great existential questions that that are associated with whether we're no, alone in it, the universe and all of that? No, uh, not not back then. Mm-hmm. And indeed, that was the kind of spirituality that I've you know embraced in in my life. Yeah, organized religion is is not my thing. Yeah, um, I I went 
I was shipped off to Sunday school for a while and asked all kinds of embarrassing questions. And seriously, they asked me not to come back. So, <laughs> Gosh, okay. Well, um, I mean, you, you know, you're always described as a pioneer. And yeah, it's almost hard for me to believe that just how you had to be a pioneer just by virtue of being a woman, um, that you had to take home economics really before you could take woodshop, that you were the only female engineering student in your class at Cornell, and that they locked the women in their dorms from 10 really at did. night to 6 in the they morning. They absolutely did. You know, it was called in loco parentis was the <sighs> policy at Cornell in terms of its young women. Yeah. But you did nevertheless become one of the first scientists to embark on this methodical search for um, yes. extraterrestrial intelligence. And I think that that work um, on looking for habitable planets, the exoplanets, is it has been in the news more recently. Um, but I just to to focus in on what you the the piece of this that you were working on is. Here's this, a way you said it that feels very clear to me as a non-astronomer. SETI uses tools of astronomy to find someone else's technology out there. So you're looking, rather than looking for planets, you're looking for technologies, for signals of technologies, of something engineered, not natural, as an expression of civilizations out there. Is that That's right. We, okay. we can't find intelligence at a distance. Yeah. Um, maybe we could define people listening to your podcast as intelligent because they're listening, but it's hard to know that remotely. Right. right. Uh, so we've just used technology as a proxy for intelligence, mm -hmm. and we're trying to find places on the sky where something has used technology to modify their environment in ways that we could detect over interstellar distances, which are, are vast. And the amazing thing to me over my career is that there have been two enormous game changers. The first being finding planets around other stars, which is right. a discipline that actually SETI started. So back early on in the 70s, when we were starting to do SETI, we did not know if other stars had planets. We literally only knew about the nine planets at in our own solar system. And so we started holding workshops and bringing in people who built instrumentation and, and who were also curious about this question about planets beyond our solar system. One of the participants was uh, Bill Baruki, who eventually led the whole Kepler mission. Right, and he right. began thinking about finding an, a planet because a certain fraction of planets would pass in front of their star when being viewed by our telescopes and would cast a shadow and the light from the star would dim and it would do that periodically. And he wrote a paper with Audrey Summers at the epoch where we were doing these workshops where he suggested that using these transits would be a, a good way to find planets and literally... One week shy of 25 years later, hmm. uh, he was able to launch the Kepler spacecraft. And that was fortuitous for those of us that are interested to know about life beyond Earth, because now we know there are more planets than there are stars in the galaxy. That is, every star, on average, has one or more planets. And so there's a lot of real estate out there. And that, that became really important. Yeah. 
It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I know that's what you mean when you say that this was a game changer in your field, but it's just one of these examples of of how the best possible understanding and intelligence, you know, can completely evolve, um, like within, right, with the, in a very short span of time, that we see the world one way and then we see something that changes the, everything we thought we believed. Yeah, I mean, we do reserve the right to get smarter. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Okay. And yeah. then, the, of course, the other game changer is extremophiles. Yeah. Types of life living in environments on this planet, which... When I was a student, I was told we're absolutely sterile, no chance of life there. Well, once we develop the tools for recognizing life, it turns out that anywhere that there's even the smallest amount of water, we can find life making a living in all kinds of different ways. And it's amazing to me, there's, there's um, bacteria uh, living in the cooling waters of nuclear reactors right. in that huge radiation environment. There's, right. there's life that's living in boiling battery acid around volcanoes. Mm. Uh, there's life living in ice. There's life living at the bottom of the ocean around uh, hydrothermal vents and not just microbial life, great huge tube worms and a whole ecosystem. So I think that part of the lesson there is we need to stop projecting what we think onto what we don't yet know. So we were totally wrong. And now extremophiles and exoplanets suggest there's just a huge amount of potentially habitable environments out there. I do think that and, what, what we're learning about our earthling brains also, though, suggests that that's a hard thing for us to do, right? Not to project uh, definitely, assumptions. Definitely. Yeah. But we, you know, we need to mm-hmm. distinguish between what we know and what we think is but have not yet uh, verified and right. found evidence for. We still are wedded to the idea of liquid water because all biology that we know here on this planet uses that as a solvent. But at least some of the community has begun to think out of the box or, or more broadly about what life is and could there be life using some solvent other than water or some anchoring element other than carbon and so uh, and then that really changes everything right but, it it does yeah. this weird life is is an interesting concept and it's indeed um the national academy of sciences study on this predicted that it not only might exist on some other world with different uh, environmental conditions, but it also might exist on this planet. Mm. And mm. in certain regions, particularly regions that are very limited in their access to water, uh, some other type of life may have outcompeted life as we know it. And we haven't found it simply because all the tools that we use to find life are based on life as we do know it, right. DNA, chemistry. Mm. I can imagine that, I, I mean, was astrobiology even a term when you were, I can imagine that just the field that you entered and the variations on, well, on astronomy, but everything that surrounds that, that, that that's also so very different from when you, when you were being locked into your dormitory going out <laughs> for certain, 10 to 6. <laughs> certainly, certainly was. And, and we, so astrobiology didn't exist 
but something called exobiology oh. did, led by a scientist named John Billingham at NASA Ames Research. And those folks, starting with the Viking mission in the 70s, were thinking about life on other worlds. So the Viking, Viking 1 and, and 2 landers had life detection instrumentation on them as well as instruments to study the the geology of the planets and so people were thinking about life somewhere else there was a huge hiatus between viking whose life detection experiments on the surface uh, were not successful and the rise of astrobiology and it it had to do i think in large part with the discovery of extremophiles on this world and our desire to to build techniques and technologies that could study them. And then after quite a long hiatus, folks got really wound up about the potential for life beyond Earth as we started to find planets around other stars. And the, the great thing from my point of view is that because this is a new field, right, we're mm-hmm. creating it as going along, it isn't a field that's siloed, isolated, and stuffed up at the top with, excuse me, old white male scientists. Okay. Right? So yeah. we're, getting, we're getting the best and the brightest of, the young, of our young students interested in this subject because they can see that there might be, in fact, within their careers, fabulously exciting discoveries. And... Actually, I think maybe the best of the best of mm. the young astrobiologists are women. Mm. Right? Uh, so they're, they're not just populating the traditional biological labs, but they're really interested in biology elsewhere. That's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I wish I weren't so old because I think this century is going to tell us about life beyond Earth in any one of a number of ways. And I'm not going to be around to, to experience those discoveries, probably. But it's, it's an exciting time. You know, um, I, was a, I, was, I, was, I was a big lover of science fiction. And um, I remember, you know, at, at one of those ages where you're starting to kind of meet really big ethical existential questions, I remember somebody proposing that... One of the reasons we'd never found any other civilizations is that any civilization sophisticated enough to travel into space or transmit signals we could understand would have destroyed itself by way of that same technological sophistication, right? Of course, this is nuclear arms race years, but I I, right. I remember being so just horrified at that thought. Right? I can't remember how old I was, but I I, I didn't know what to do with it. And... Um, I want to. So I'm, this is a. This will make sense. It's not a non sequitur, but the Drake equation is really important to you and your field. And I, I do want to talk about that because it feels like something that the rest of us should at least know exists. One of the things in the in the Drake equation, one of the, it's about the number of technological civilizations we might be able to detect, and one of those things uh, is longevity, and which seems to me a way of pointing at that science fiction childhood question. Um, yeah, actually, that's one of the reasons that I am always enthusiastic about talking about SETI mm-hmm. and working on the problem, because 
This is something that most people probably don't comprehend, but in order for us to be successful and detect evidence of someone else's technology, they have to be clo- that technology has to be close to us, not only close in space, but close in time. That is, they have to be co-temporal with our technology over the 10 billion year history of our galaxy. <laughs> and they, statistically, the only way that that's going to happen is if, on average, technological civilizations last a long time, yeah. that their longevity is great. So from my point of view, that's what a successful detection of someone else's technology would tell us, that it's really possible to have a long future yeah. in spite of the challenges that we see today. I think that's the, the best message that the detection of someone else's technology could bring to us, that it's possible to survive your technological adolescence. Yeah, right. They won't tell us how, probably, mm-hmm. but the fact that somebody else made it through, mm-hmm. I think, is an important and motivating factor. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with astronomer Jill Tarter. that in physics, I think this is one way you've said, in physics we have this funny way of counting. We count one, two, infinity. And so right now we only have one example of civilization as we define it, intelligence, technological advance as we define it. But you've said that the moment a second example is found, then there is reason to believe that there are many. That's right. Number two is the all-important number. Yeah, that's so interesting. So we don't know whether life on this planet is due to hugely, hugely improbable contingencies that aren't going to line up and reproduce themselves somewhere else. But the moment that you find a second example of life, then you know that this is just the results of physics and chemistry, Hmm. and it will happen elsewhere whenever the conditions are similar. So number two would mean that intelligent life or technological civilizations are widespread. So in our own solar system, we are looking at missions that will explore other planets and moons of the solar system, looking to see if there's additional life. Now, If we find it either extinct or extant, um, we will have to ask a second question. And that is, is the life that we found off of Earth related to life on Earth? Because Hmm. early in the formation of the solar system, there was a lot of rock swapping going on. Right, right, right. right. A lot of collisions that uh, were energetic enough to blast rocks off the surfaces of the various 
um, newly forming planets. And if if life existed on one of them, it might have hitched a ride as microbes on a piece of rock that landed on Earth and, and seeded life here. Or it could have gone in the other direction. Life from Earth could have hitchhiked and found itself on another planet or moon of our solar system. So we need to be very careful and try and decide whether the life that we found is the result of a second genesis, independent of life on Earth. And in that case, we have much optimism that life will happen everywhere. Or is that life related to us and is an example of what we call panspermia, spreading life around? In which case, it really doesn't give us much reason to believe that life would be ubiquitous and plentiful beyond our solar system. I mean, somewhere you said we, or said we are part of a billion-year lineage of wandering stardust. Um, yes. So you're saying if it turns out that it's related, then that that one to infinity uh, thinking doesn't quite apply. We really no, need it. No, it would be uh-huh. one and one point one. Okay, All right. one two. <laughs> yeah. So you were um, the inspiration, and to some degree, the model for. The character Jodie Foster played in the movie Contact, um, Ellie Arroway, which was based on a book by Carl Sagan. Right. Um, and of course, in the movie version of the story of what you've been engaged in your whole life, um, there is a beacon detected from space and humanity builds the machine to find it and something um, wondrous happens. Um, and I don't like, I, I feel like I have to ask you this question and I also. I feel that even in the in the time we've been speaking uh, right now, uh, the answer is not obvious. Um, but uh, you know, the question is: is it, it's hard to imagine that it hasn't been that there haven't been disappointing days or seasons of your life that you're that this has been the the work you've done and that we have not yet found uh, what what you have helped us create the capacity to search for. Actually. The, the thing there is to understand how big and vast the universe is yeah. and how and many different And that holds you all the time, planets. that knowledge. You, you, you're always, Absolutely. always I, aware of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so when people say, well, aren't you discouraged? You haven't found anything yet. I'm going, yeah. we have hardly begun to look. I did an exercise when Seti was 50 years old. Uh, so that's 2010. I said, okay, even if the right thing to be looking for is electromagnetic signals. And that might not be the right thing. Mm -hmm. There might be other things that would be appropriate techno-signatures for us to find. But even, let's just say, electromagnetism, signals, waves, are the right thing to be looking for. How big is the search space that we have to explore in order to find another uh, technological civilization? And what fraction of that have we sampled and explored in 50 years? And numerically, the the equivalent is looking for fish and scooping one 12-ounce glass of water out of all the Earth's oceans and not finding a fish. Uh, It's an experiment that could have worked, but it didn't succeed the first time you tried it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that as a result 
of sampling that one glass, you're going to decide that there are no fish in the ocean. Right. right? You're going to say, I need to search more of the ocean's volumes. And that's exactly where we are. I mean, we've been working on this for a while, and we've invented new tools to help us. But indeed, we've hardly begun to search. And of course, we're very fortunate that much of the improvement in the way that we're able to conduct these searches is the result of improving computer technology. And that's uh, improving at an exponential rate. Right. And we definitely want to grab onto that. So yeah. we're looking forward to exploring uh, the parameter space for signals much more quickly and extensively and with uh, perhaps the aid of, of neural networks and, and artificial intelligence, looking for the kinds of signals that we haven't been looking for. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, there's also this interesting reality. Uh, you often quote Philip Morrison saying, SETI is the archaeology of the future. That if we, if we do receive a transmission from another technological civilization, it will tell us about their past, right? That's right. That's the tyranny of light speed. Yeah, right. It's going to take this signal a while to get from a distant star to our telescopes. Ah, but actually, the second piece of that quote, so that's the archaeology piece. Mm-hmm. Information that we receive will be telling us about the transmitter when that signal was sent. But that's fine. I mean, people worry that, well, you know, if they're so far away, you're not going to be able to ask them a question and you'll have to wait so long for an answer. But that's not the right way to think about that. Think about the ancient Greeks and Shakespeare, Mm. right? Mm. They transmit information to us, which is extraordinarily useful. Right. And it propagates forward in time. Even though we can't ask them any questions in return, we still learn a lot about what life was like in ancient Rome or in England when Shakespeare was writing. So the archaeology piece is pretty straightforward. It's it's the future piece that is hard to get your head around, but it's exactly what I was saying before, that if you succeed in detecting a signal that has a message, then the longevity factor for technological civilizations has to be large. We are not going to succeed if, on average technological civilizations pop up and turn themselves off or do themselves in in a hundred years, there's not going to be another one out there that's close enough to us, uh, us and to co-temporal. Right. So right. by virtue of succeeding in finding a signal, we know that it's possible for us to have a long future because someone else has done so. Hmm. And, and so uh, that's why I like both parts of that lovely phrase from Phil Morrison. Yeah. about the archaeology and about our future. It kind of gets at um, what I, I what I wanted to ask you next, which is um, just curious how you think you walk through the world differently through your lived experience. I mean, one thing I'm very intrigued by is the way you use language. I mean, I use the word species a lot and people make fun of me um, or speak of humans, but you speak of earthlings. Yes. <laughs> And um, so, but I'm just, so I'm curious, you know, but how does this work you do in the, with this cosmic sense of uh, space and time and possibility um, 
kind of inform the way you move through the world as an earthling, but also as a scientist? Well, I think that it's inevitable if you think about the kinds of exploration that we're trying to do, that you continue your thought process into wondering mm. what might someone else be like. And when you think about the other, what might be there, it has the philosophical equivalence of holding up a mirror to every individual on this planet and saying, see, all of you, you're all the same when right. compared to something right. out that. there that had evolved independently. Hmm. And so I really like the potential of SETI for changing people's perspective and trivializing the differences among humans, differences that we're so willing to shed blood over, mm -hmm. when indeed we are all human, we are all earthlings, we are all the same compared to something else. And if you see yourself as an earthling before you see yourself as a Californian, yeah. then I think that sets the stage for tackling really difficult challenges on a global scale. After a short break, more with astronomer Jill Tarter. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with astronomer Jill Tarter. She is a co-founder of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. SETI doesn't look for habitable planets or mere signs of life, but for signs of the technology of advanced civilizations in the cosmos. Carl Sagan was inspired to write the main character of his novel, Contact, after knowing Jill Tarter as a young scientist. You, you've spoken about your love of really the creativity of the scientific enterprise um, and that you see in our time science providing raw material for all kinds of new forms of expression, also in the humanities, and that you, as a, as a scientist, you, never, you get to never ask, stop asking why. <laughs> yes. You never have to grow up, right? There are always, you can keep asking questions and then you can try and find answers, mm -hmm. which will probably lead to a lot more questions. Mm -hmm. Science is all about finding answers to questions that no one else has yet found an answer to. It's about puzzle solving. It's about yeah. mystery. It's about challenges. It's fun. I mean, it is so rewarding to understand something for the first time that no one else has been able yet to understand and to pass that information along and then go on to the next question that is uh, inspired by what you've just understood. So I think we need to tell our students that science is 
a fantastic way of spending a career and having fun and being challenged and never being bored. Yeah, I've I've spoken with mathematicians and physicists who, you know, point out the difference between arithmetic or or just the math that people learn in school and the the beauty and excitement of mathematical thinking. And I feel like what you have is this kind of, you know, cosmic thinking based on the science you do. Yeah, um I like to give people homework assignments at the end of a lecture and tell them as soon as they get back to their devices to open up their profiles and change them so that the first thing they say about themselves is that they're an earthling and then to start (laughs) acting like that. So this, this cosmic point of view, seeing yourself in a much larger context of both space and time is, I think, really going to be fundamental to us having a long future. I think that Caleb Scharf, who's the chairman of the astrobiology department at Columbia, has a lovely phrase, like one of Philip Morrison's. He says that on a finite world, and the Earth is definitely finite, a cosmic perspective is not a luxury. It's actually a necessity. Hmm. So I keep trying to encourage people to think about themselves in a larger framework. I'm curious um, how that framework that you have like shifts the way you follow something like politics, which especially right now in the oh. in the adolescence of the of Earth is. Um, it feels very adolescent. I mean, it's it, and people are fixated on it, right? Um, oh, yes. I just and yes. I, I wonder, I wonder how you bring this framework to something like that to politics. Yeah, let's say to politics right now. Um. Yeah, mostly I try not to get too upset by it. Hmm. The um, you can go back and find video clips of politicians uh, going back to Reagan, at least on both sides of the aisle, and they will, in one way or another, posit that, suppose we were aware of an alien fleet coming to Earth and posing an existential threat. Wouldn't that be a reason for governments and individuals everywhere to unite to protect our planet against this potential invasion. Mm -hmm. And I think that, indeed, the right political question to ask now is that we are at huge risk of losing the planet in the form that we currently enjoy it, and that that threat ought to be enough to cause us to wake up and start to cooperate to make things better. So the fact that a number of different political arenas deny that there is an existential crisis right now is incredibly frustrating to me. And I simply try to keep having conversations around this topic and trying to help people to understand that 
the threat is real. Right. The thing that, that, that must unite us is upon us. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious if you if you watch if you like science fiction. I mean, so many so many physicists in particular I speak with were very formed by Star Trek. I mean, but do, is this? And I mean, you were you. This movie was kind of very much about the world you move in, and in some ways about you. Um, how do you see that? How do, or just do you enjoy it? I actually read a huge amount of science fiction as a young person. Uh-huh. Um, and this was the the classics, Arthur C. Clarke yeah. and Robert Heinlein and Asimov. Um, and I, I really liked losing myself in, in their worlds. I don't read so much science fiction now because I find it more intriguing and interesting to actually do the science. Hmm. Um, but I think it's been very useful to help us to think about life as we don't yet know it. Um, science fiction writers are fantastic at dreaming up different worlds, different species, and different rationales for how they live their lives. And so it's, it's a way of uh, thinking about what we don't yet conceive of. It's like art. Right mm-hmm. at the SETI Institute, we have an artist in residence. Program. I know. I read about that. Yeah, and uh, I think that's been extremely valuable because we're dealing with the unknown. We're dealing with things that we can't really conceive of, but the artists can mm. help us think mm. beyond the boundaries of what we already know. And I think it's been really pleasurable for the last ten years to have these artists who can reimagine the work that we're doing and let us look at it from a different lens, more creatively. And they've produced some, A, very visually pleasing things, and B, things that uh, allow us to interact with the public in creative new ways and explain what we're doing in new ways. And I've really enjoyed my interactions with our artists. I'm working with a composer in Mexico right now um, called Felipe uh, Santiago. And his project, if we can get it funded, is to ask people around the world to send him a bit of song that's associated (sighs) with their um, cultural systems songs that refer to life or death or love or all of these universal emotions. And then he proposes to take those human voices and songs and compose a symphony from them. And that symphony will be called Earthling. And I like to imagine that if we actually do this, that, say, the first colonists going to the moon or Hmm. to Mars might be able to take a musical representation Hmm. of our planet at this time with them as they leave the planet. It's kind of like, um, it's not a new golden record, but it's kind of like a 21st century offering uh, that would be sent out. (laughs) Indeed. And unlike the golden record, we anticipate that this musical offering will not just talk about shiny, pretty, good things, but it will have 
passages that are evocative of sorrow and death and grieving mm-hmm. and um, the negative parts of of life as we know it on this planet. Because, of course, the golden record, there was no one that was sick or ill or Gosh, hungry. I'd never thought about that. You're right. It and was just very much projected. a triumphant. Well, we were like that back then, right? That's how we projected yeah. everything. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. in, in fact, we're more complex than that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really hoping that if we can pull this off, that the symphony will have just so much emotional breadth. Mm. Mm. about what it's like to be human. This piece you're hearing now was composed by SETI's artist-in-residence, Felipe Perez-Santiago. It's called Quest and was part of the 2018 album The Sound of Science. The project included original music by seven composers and was inspired by the lives of groundbreaking scientists throughout history. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with astronomer Jill Tarter. You do acknowledge that one possibility of this search is that we don't find anything, that we are alone. How do you think about that? What, what meaning does that hold for you? Um, at this point, after all these decades of working with this? Well, I'm not really anywhere close to drawing that conclusion at the moment. I Mm -hmm. think, as I said before, we've just barely begun to search, and uh, we haven't done a significant search. And it it has to really, that conclusion that we're alone is so profound Mm -hmm. that the significance of the search and the systematic coverage of all possibilities has to be extraordinary in order to support that profound conclusion. So, um, I guess I'm curious just about the question itself, you know? Um, yeah, well, again, if it should turn out that this is the only intelligent life, at least in our part of the galaxy, then I think it's really important. It's a responsibility of every intelligent being on this planet to make sure that this does not go away, that we manage to uh, sustain intelligent life on this oasis. (laughs) It it creates this huge responsibility, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. This cosmic responsibility. Yeah, so I, I kind of just wanted to, I mean, this just following on what we've been talking about, just how this life you've lived, the science you do, what you see and understand, and and also I think by nature of who you are, how much you're formed by the questions you're asking, right? The, the constant holding of the why. Um, how that shapes the way, you, you know, has, has evolved the way you think about what it means to be human. And I realize that's a huge question, but and we've been talking around it, but uh, where would you start to think about that out loud? Oh, what it means to be human. To me, finding another dark sky and looking up at the cosmos, at all of those stars, it is just so awesome. And to think about the fact that humans 
have somehow managed to figure out what makes all of those beautiful stars and what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and, and somehow, somehow our brain has pieced together a 13.8 billion year history of our universe and how intimately we're connected to those distant times and places. You know, the, the calcium in our bones and the iron and the hemoglobin in our blood, they were all cooked up in, in um, a massive star that blew itself up billions of years ago. Yeah. I mean, we are literally, you know, as Carl Sagan's, we're made of stardust, mm. and that's quite literal. And, and so, to me, being human is about appreciating the fact that we are so closely connected to this much bigger idea of an evolving universe. I mean, I often say it takes a cosmos to make a human. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I have bad days and and I get upset with people and um, I think that some other individual's ideas are wrong or stupid even. But I don't usually act out on them um, Mm -hmm. because I really think that it's more important to appreciate this cosmos and and our connection to it than to fuss about trivial, small concerns. And so I spend my time trying to answer a big question Mm -hmm. and... Hopefully, uh, the teams that are working on SETI searches will someday be able to share with humanity, all humanity, a really important answer to a very old question. And if you're working on that, uh, how could you not be inspired? How could you not um, find satisfaction in being alive at the right time with the right technology to really probe something that's larger than we are. Hmm. What, what, what is that single question? What, what, if you do, do you, it sounds like you do condense it to, what is it? Well, it's are we alone, it's right? Okay. And that, yeah. that, that has a range for my astrobiology colleagues. That means, is there any pond scum out there, right? Any hmm. microbial life, hmm. any kind of biology. Hmm. And for me, I'm I'm more interested in the mathematicians than the microbes. So mm-hmm. I want to know whether any of that life elsewhere has evolved into technological civilizations. Yeah. And it, it you know it's just it's really so stupendous to conceive of life evolving over billions of years from the first reproducing biological molecule into the diversity of life that impacts this whole planet. Yeah. Somewhere you said, you called us a primordial mixture of hydrogen and helium that evolves for so long that it begins to ask where it came from. Yes. Which sounds, right, which which can sound like a diminishing, but actually it's just an extraordinary thought. Yeah. I mean, no other species on the planet today can use its senses and its tools 
to understand that long cosmic evolution and where we came from. And it's astonishing that life would eventually produce something that could study the cosmos and wonder about where we came from. Jill Tarter is the co-founder and chair emeritus for SETI Research at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. She currently serves on the management board for the Allen Telescope Array. She has been awarded two exceptional public service medals from NASA and the Women in Aerospace Lifetime Achievement Award. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikishan, and Lily Benowitz. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.